Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Today we feel the weight and sorrow as Jesus was led to the cross. And as we worship tonight, we pray that we would be led into deeper understanding of why this is a good Friday. We're going to be reading a lot of scriptures, so follow along with us as we read. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at at the table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him and asked Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So the morsel, oh, sorry. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Dying feet, 
Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is a man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him, and behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Oh, now indeed. 
Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put on his clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God.
For in the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Why have you forsaken me? Upon his final breath, this centurion, who was watching over Jesus after witnessing the tearing of the veil in the temple, the rocks breaking in half, and the earthquakes surrounding his death, he uttered these words, Truly, this was the Son of God. And that begs an important question for us to survey on this evening. If this Jesus, whom whom we've just read about that died a brutal death on a cross was in fact the Son of God, then why did God, His Father, forsake Him? I want you to turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to 1 Peter 2, and if you don't, the words will be on the screen as well. But 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 21 through 25 over our next few minutes. Beginning in verse 21, Peter says this, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, and when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He starts off with this phrase, for to this you have been called. This is, to what is Peter calling us? And to know you have to look back at 1 Peter 2, 18-20, where he says this to the recipients of this message, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure 
This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. You see, Christ on this night is doing something good for us and suffering for it. And God deems that a gracious thing. A gracious thing. So speaking to these servants or these slaves of these masters and indirectly speaking to us as Christians today, Peter is saying to this, doing of good and suffering for it, we are called. And God deems it gracious and worthy. And so this thing that Christ is doing on this night, something that he is suffering, is something that is actually good for him to do and to endure, and for God to deem this an act of grace and mercy. So it is to this that you have been called, because Christ also suffered. That is what we've been singing about, what we've been reading about. His death on the cross, he has suffered it for you. That's substitution. For you. Leaving you an example. That's illustration. So that you might follow in his steps. Listen, if you only follow Jesus as an example, if you only follow him as an example, then you at best become a social activist who puts band-aids on the, the wounds of this world around us. We need the messiness of the substitution. We need the messiness of the Christ because the substitution is the atonement. It's the death of Jesus. It's the bloodshed of Jesus in your place. It's the foundation necessary for the example to actually be lived out in our lives on a daily basis. Without the for you, without the substitution in our place, our sins are not washed away. And we are not forgiven. And we are still children of wrath. Now quickly... What was his example? What was his illustration that we are to follow in? It's verses 22 and 23. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to God who judges justly. So Peter's exhortation to us is that Christ's example was while he was suffering... He did not in that moment repay evil for evil, but instead he continually entrusted himself to God who judges justly. You see, God will have vengeance in the end over evil. God will have the final word. God will deal with those who unjustly cause suffering to us and others in the world. And then the only way in which Jesus endures while suffering unjustly is by continuing to entrust himself to God the Father. That's his example he leaves with us. But there's more than just the example of what to do when you experience suffering. There's something that Christ is earning for us in his suffering, and that's namely the substitution. What we focus on on this evening, the reason why it's Good Friday, is because of the substitution. Because Christ also suffered for you. What did Christ suffer? He suffered verses 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, 
but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The first thing that I notice in these verses is that he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's the substitution. He did not bear his own sins, for in verse 22 it says he committed no sin. There was no sin for Jesus to go to the cross and bear that came from his mind, came from his heart, came from his thoughts, came from his actions, came from his deeds. There was nothing deserving of Jesus to go to the cross himself. He committed no sin. Perfect and righteous. This is Jesus. So the for you is interpreted as the sin bearing on the cross in your place. In your place. He didn't have any sin. He bore our sins. He bore our guilt. He bore our condemnation in his body on the tree. That's why he was forsaken by his father. Because he literally had to become what we are. He became sin. Who knew no sin. So that you and I might become the righteousness of him. Why? Well, the purpose of what he did is next. That. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So the point was not merely for Christ to suffer by taking our sins away. But there's more to the story. And what I want to do is recall for you 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. That's the substitution. That's the suffering unjustly. That he might bring us to God. That he might bring us to God. We, we get the chasm between us and God overcome by the substitution of Jesus. The righteous for the unrighteous. He brings us to God. Now back in 24, the purpose is that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So take notice that Christ suffered for you. That's his substitution on the tree. The cross in your place to bear your sins, your grief, your condemnation. Leaving us an example. That is the righteousness in 24. That we are to live to or live in his righteousness. The failure to follow Christ's example, the failure to live in righteousness, is the actual sin that put him on the tree. We're called to live righteously. We're called to live in relationship with God. And we punted that. We kicked that to the curb when we sinned in the garden. And everyone born from there on out is born sinners. Who stray like sheep. We go our own way. We do what we want to do. Every thought that we have that is contrary to the righteousness of Christ is sin. Every action that we do that is contrary to the actions of Jesus is sin. Knowing what to do and not doing it is sin. Knowing what not to do and doing it is sin. And all of those sins Jesus takes to the cross and he places them on himself. And he becomes them. In order to crush them. To put them to death. To have the wrath of God. We, we feel a little bit of that. When, when we sin and we feel that guilt, we feel that shame, we feel that conviction. 
We feel a little bit of, of what's due to us because of our sin. Christ takes the guilt and the shame and the condemnation from all and places it on himself and has his father's wrath towards that sin directed at him and he's crushed in it. He's crushed in it so that we might live to righteousness, so that we might follow his example. Christ's substitution is the basis for the illustration. It's the basis for the example. You cannot follow Christ as an example if Christ has not bore your sin on the cross first. It's the best way to say it's impossible to live the Christian life if Jesus has not borne your sin on the cross. It's impossible. We, we, can't, we, we can't just adopt Jesus as a good example and try to live like Jesus in our lives if our sin has not been crucified to him on the cross. I want you to see this. 1 Corinthians 1, 20-24 says this, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. What he's basically saying there is he's saying there's no philosophy, there's no ideology, there's no political party, there's no socioeconomic status, there's no degree of education, there's no hierarchical system or status, there's nothing that allows you to come to God in relationship except this one thing. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. What he's basically saying there is Jews are demanding works and the Greeks are demanding philosophy and ideologies and anything that sounds like it's ascribing to a higher life or a better life. But what he is saying here is we preach Christ crucified. There it is. We preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and it's folly to the Gentiles. It's hard for the Jews to wrap their minds around a cross bearing Christ who's going to take the sins away from the world. That's not what they're expecting to come as a Messiah. And it sounds foolish to the Gentiles because they're in their intellect and they're in their philosophies and their ideologies of how you can ascribe yourself to a better life. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, here it is, Christ crucified is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Like The only way that we can follow in Christ's example and live a life that is righteous is if we understand first and foremost that that power comes from Christ being crucified on the cross in order to put our sin to death, that we might die to sin, the very thing keeping us from a life that is righteous and a life that is following in the example of Jesus. Christ crucified is the power of God and the wisdom of God. God's means of flexing His power it's through Jesus literally just flipping the entire societal structure on itself. It sounds foolish to the world. But that's because it's outside of this world. 
This economic means is alien to our minds. How is it that Christ being killed is the very means by which he establishes his victory? Like you want to you duel back in the wild, wild west? The, the way you win is by killing the other person. You want to win a war? You literally either intimidate the other into submission or you blow them up into submission. Is that too violent? we got kids in here. You want to win a game? You have to outscore the others. It's not the other way around. Yet here, Christ's victory for you is by Him appearing to lose everything by becoming a man of sorrows and surrendering His life to death. What does it continue to say in 1 Peter 2, 24? By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. For those of you who know the Old Testament, light bulbs should be going off right now. He's getting all of this from Isaiah 53. That's what Peter is doing here. Peter knows what Isaiah 53 says, and he's just paraphrasing it as he is preaching this. Surely, Isaiah 53, 4-6, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, Peter's just paraphrasing this. You can see all of the substitution here that is happening. Born our griefs. Carried our sorrows. Pierced for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. Chastised to bring us peace. Wounded so that we would receive healing. By his wounds you have been healed. So the question is, how have you been healed? Why is this news of Christ being crushed, beaten, bruised, pierced, and put to death? Why is this news good? Why is this good Friday? Like if this happened to any one of our, our friends or family members, it would be terrible Friday, forever. That's how we would view it. We would not want to remember it. By his wounds you have been healed. Verse 25 gives us the reason. For, for you were straying. The straying that we committed are the wounds that Christ endures. The strain that we do are the wounds that inflict him and pierce him and crush him. Like sheep. What's the healing for that strain like sheep, that disease of sin? But we have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. We have returned. The healing here is or equals fellowship and relationship with God and Christ the Holy Spirit. 
Christ on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you disfellowshipped with me? Was so that he could bear the full wrath of God. God literally viewing him as your sin and crushing it and disfellowshipping in order for you to be brought to him in fellowship and return to him in an ultimate substitution. We are returned to the shepherd and overseer. Christ is forsaken by the Father so that we might be taken to the Father. And like we saw in 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that we might be brought to God. The best news you will ever hear is that you have strayed, is that you have sinned, you have broken relationship with God, and it would be just for God to kill you for your disobedience to Him. But because of God's love for you, Jesus offers Himself in your place to bear your sins, to be crushed by your iniquities, to be forsaken by His Father on the cross, so that your sins would be paid in full and the debt canceled and that Jesus might bring you home. Like that is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what he has purchased for us on this night 2,000 years ago. Jesus suffered the most horrific death in all of history. He did it for the glory of his father and he did it for you to be returned home. It is a sad and somber moment, a humbling one in all reality, and one that we annually draw our attention to in remembrance of why Jesus had to die. I, I think of all the ways that I've been helped in my life by friends and family. Like it's, it's my responsibility to provide food for our family, and yet there are times where others substitute my responsibilities and provide it for us. It's my responsibility to pay off the debts we owe, and yet there are times where others step in and relieve us financially. It's my responsibility to raise and care for our children, and yet there are times often where others step in to watch them, to teach them, to care for them, protect them, play with them, and so on. All of these examples are a humbling experience to a degree. But nothing, nothing is more humbling than knowing that my strength my sin has put on my life a debt that is owed to God, and that debt is death and eternal punishment in hell for sinning against Him. And yet, Christ has come to suffer in my place, who took my sins, who canceled my debt, and has died in my place. You can't do that for me. I can't do that for you. Only Christ can do this. Jesus, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Only he can be the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So tonight, we weep and we mourn as we reflect on Jesus being crushed in our place. Our sins put him there. We can't blame first century Jews who crucified him. Their physical torturing of Jesus is merely the illustration of our spiritual strain in torturing him on our own initiative. For every bad thought or disbelief we have in God is another nail driven through the hands and feet of Jesus. 
It's another spear piercing his side. It's another thorn being pressed into his head. It's another drop of blood that is shed and bruises formed by his body being crushed. We did that. That's on us. And that's sad, and that's somber, and that's humbling. But keep it ever before you. Keep it ever before you that no one took his life from him, but rather for the joy set before him, he endured it. And he laid it down on his own initiative in order to heal you from the thing that killed him. To heal you from your straying and sinning and wandering away so that you could be turned and repent and come back home to your shepherd, to the overseer of your soul, to be in relationship with the God who created you. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand. We have some elements at the back on the table. If you have not um, had a chance to grab those, go ahead and go back and grab those elements for communion. As we have sung, as you have heard read, as we have read the scriptures, as we have preached, this ceremony of communion is us remembering exactly what happened on this night some 2,000 years ago. That Jesus Christ did the only thing possible in order to fix what we broke, what we destroyed in our disobedience. If there were any other cup that Jesus prayed for, if there was any other way, God in his wisdom would have made that happen. But this was the only way, the only way that God had set up from the very beginning was that when we sinned against him and death enters into our existence, the only way to defeat death is by having God die and satisfying the wrath towards that death. And that's what we do is, is we celebrate the fact that Jesus went and did this for us. This meal... Of a, of, a, of a cracker and a juice. It is just a foreshadowing of what we are going to experience for eternity when we come to this massive feast at the Lamb's feet and we worship and celebrate the sacrifice that He offered in our place. This meal does not fill you up, but spiritually it does. Because it allows us to realize what we needed in order to be brought home to God and to find our ultimate satisfaction that we've been looking for in everything else. Strain trying to find it. We find it in Jesus. And we find it because he went to the cross and he broke his body and he shed his blood. 
for each one of us. And as it says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Let's proclaim the Lord's death now until he comes. And let's remember his sacrifice and worship him for bringing us home.
Bush said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. If you would like to stay in this moment and continue to honor and remember Jesus' work on the cross, when we go to this room for reverence, if you'd like to come forward for fellowship, I'm going to invite you to um, hang out in the corner. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at